Welcome to Crash Chords Autographs. This week, Matt welcomes a singer-songwriter hailing from Stony Creek, Ontario, named Aaron Little. With his latest single, Nobody to Talk To, off his upcoming record, It's About Time, out on August 26th, Aaron touches upon his new record with Matt, discussing the inspirations behind it. He also chats about the music scene in Canada, and how it might differ from the scene here in the States. Moving on to his background, Aaron lets us in on how his songwriting is affected by such factors as his music influences, his education, and whether he's playing with a band or as a solo artist. And so, with some final notes on the difficulties and challenges of being a modern indie artist, here's presenting Matt Storm and Aaron Little. And welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I'm Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and my guest today is the one and only Aaron Little. Thanks for joining me, man. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me. Um, so I want to start off right away and tell you that I got to listen to your song, Nobody to Talk To, and I really dig it. I like it a lot. Um, a lot of pop and dance and even rock influence. Um, were you, is that always the kind of music you wanted to make, or is that something that you kind of started exploring recently? I have been writing a variety of different kinds of music for a very long time. And, uh, you know, when I was in college and doing music, you know, you're at that point, you're trying to hone up on your technical abilities and so on. So a lot of the music I was making was very technically challenging. You know, it was like a lot of prog rock. You know, I was playing a lot of Dream Theater and Yes and things at that time. So it had, you know, a completely different feel to how things were. And then as the years went along, um, what ended up happening was I started making music that came a lot more naturally to me. And so I kind of went with that and uh, sort of just continued making that music for from there on in. So like for, for me, pop lyrics were something that always came a lot more natural than trying to write something else, uh, trying to write like serious poetry or ethereal kind of stuff. And uh, so that's just been sort of my, my sound, my tone, but I don't really limit myself to a style. I try not to anyway. So a lot of the other songs that are on the album, you'll hear there's uh, one tune in particular that I just said, screw it and wrote a song that sounded like Muse because I wanted to. <laughs> um, you know, but then I have another one that's like a reggae acoustic type of song and another one that's uh, Keith Urban influence. Like it, there's a, a pop overtone to everything, but at the same time, the, the influences behind them are all quite different. So would you say that your inspirations and your influences kind of growing up were a large variety of different kinds of music? Uh, very rock influenced when I was growing up anyway. Like uh, uh, I grew up in the 90s, so for me, Alice in Chains and Metallica and those kind of things were a very big influence on my type of playing then. I would have to say Guns N' Roses is still, to this day, my biggest influence. Um, oh, wow. And Aerosmith, Deep Purple, were a lot of what it is that And when I was getting into rock and being a really serious guitar player at that time were big. But my dad also, he, he had a big influence on the music that I listened to just because he had a large record collection. And we take a lot of road trips as a family, so we listened to Harry Chapin, we listened to the Beach Boys, we listened to Elton John, we listened to you know a variety of different things from 50s and 60s and oldies music, you know. So a lot of that still has a lot of influence in in the melodies that I try to write. 
Okay, and then so you mentioned a uh, uh, a new record that's coming out later this year. So um, tell us a little bit about well, first of all, what the name of the record is, and a little bit about the process in putting that record together. So the record itself is called "It's About Time," um, which has got sort of a dual meaning to it because I've been playing with another band for a very long time and I have a lot of fans out of that that have been waiting for on me to release my own music so they've been telling me it's about time since I started <laughs> you know hinting that I was releasing an album and so that was sort of part of where the name was but also the the writing itself is in regards to a lot of stuff that I've done in my life you know especially relationships in the last 10 years and um, so it sort of has a dual meaning yeah it's about time I finally came out with the record but it's also about time as my life has gone by and uh, so the album comes out uh, August 26th. It would be available everywhere online that you could possibly find it with some physical copies coming out shortly thereafter. And uh, it's it's a record that I guess has really been my songwriting of the last uh, two to four years, somewhere in that line. And uh, it doesn't include anything from before that time. It's all fairly recent. And uh, same thing with the recording process was something that I was sort of learning a bit more directly because I did a lot of the recording myself, a lot of the instruments and vocals. Um, and I found that I could have a lot more fun with it because I was listening to an interview with Muse and they were talking about how the, the recording process itself, like the actual instruments they use and the, the effects that they, they layer onto certain things in order to be able to try and experiment really influenced a lot of uh, the direction that some of their songs went. So I thought, well, why don't I try to do the same thing? I found that a lot of sounds that I would try to use ended up being sort of the, the linchpin of the whole thing. Like, okay, here we go. Here's, here's where the song is going to come together is in this particular sound and everything from there and in sort of came naturally. And there are other ones that I got the song 90% done and still felt like something was missing until I found that one other sound or that one other instrument I needed. And then it felt like everything sort of fell into place. Um, when you're writing songs, do you find that the lyrics come first or the instrumentation and the music comes first? Depends on the song. Um, there's a, a track called All Mine um, that was sort of an acoustic, again, sort of Keith Urban sort of influence. And that one was something where I was uh, playing with an alternate tuning on my acoustic and, and just sort of playing around with something. And as I was coming up with this one line uh i thought it was kind of a cool melody so i kept it and then i walked upstairs and started humming and the very first thing that came out of my, uh, my mouth was uh spent my life looking for you and so i went okay let's try that and I walked upstairs and the, the rest of the lyrics sort of inspired how the rest of the tune went so while it was started by a melody on a guitar it was sort of finished by the lyrics whereas i've had other ones that were the opposite where nobody to talk to was a line that it came up with while driving to Montreal and seeing a lot of people using their cell phones and iPads and, and kids that are like in tow on a leash kind of thing because they have an iPad in hand, they might walk into things if they're not paying attention. Like that was sort of inspired by the outside thing. So that, that lyric was what actually started the whole, the whole song. And um, you mentioned before when we were talking about the new record that you're, you've been writing songs, it sounds like, for a long time, but you're only including recent writing on the new record. How long yep. have you actually been writing songs for? Uh, I've been playing guitar for, I guess, 26 years now, or 27 years. And so I actually, when I was taking lessons when I was really young, I guess I really started writing my own songs when I was 9 or 10. Um, wow. And then when I was in high school... I started to work on it a bit more and actually tried, you know, the the ones I was writing when I was nine or ten are really simple. Like, here's a verse, here's a chorus, let's sing another chorus, we're done. Whereas when I got into be a teenager, I, I was going to a performance school at that point in high school. 
And so we did auditions and we did uh, shows and stuff where I was trying to do songs that I was writing with a friend of mine at the time. And uh, so I guess that started more seriously um, almost 20 years ago, I guess, because I'm 34 now. So it would have been when I was 14, 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a long time to be writing music. And have you always, I know you said that there are kind of a variety of things that kind of lead back to pop on the new record, but I, it sounds like earlier on, since big influences were Alice in Chains and Metallica, I guess you probably always weren't writing in that vein. I imagine you wrote some metal or grunge or hard rock songs too. Oh yeah. Uh, when I was younger, especially I was trying to write, it was weird. It was like, I wrote a lot of things on acoustic and they ended up just being acoustic songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember what the band was called Days of the New I think was one of the bands back then Sure, yeah. Uh, Tonic was another band that I really liked at that time um, but yeah I mean being Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and all that grunge stuff that I grew up listening to like I I wrote a bunch of songs that were just very simply inspired uh, power chord type songs but I never really got to a point where I felt like they were really finished or that I was necessarily proud of them they were just sort of something that I created and, uh, you know, it, it took me a while to get to a point where I was really comfortable playing things that I wrote in front of people, because unlike a lot of people I've, I'd, who, you know, they finish something, they go, I'm so proud of this. I never really got to a point for maybe 10 years. I, you know, I felt really comfortable playing music in front of people that I wasn't sort of thinking I could do better, you know, and that was something that always sort of hung over me is just oh, I think I could do better than this. Well, sure. I mean, uh, if I've learned anything from talking to other artists and even being married to an artist, it's that it's you're your harshest critic. And so it takes a while to kind of get behind your own stuff because you assume a lot of it is not as good as it actually is. That's an experience, at least I've I've noticed with a lot of artists that I've spoken to. Oh, and I, I have exactly the same problem. Like even now when I'm finishing songs, I'm going back after the fact and going, oh, crap, I could have done this or oh, I could have done that. But, you know, I've I've heard lots of stories over the years of uh, bands that recorded through the 70s and 80s where the record label would just walk into the studio, take the tapes and walk out. And that was it, you know, because uh, they, the band spent way too much song trying to or so way too much time trying to finish songs and finish records that the record label just ran out of money and just said, screw this, we, we need to release something, it's happening now, we don't care if you think it, it's ready, it's got to be ready now. So, uh, you know, there's, I, I by far consider myself to be the only person that seems to feel like their their art isn't the only thing finished, you know, I've, I'm at a point now where I'm, I when I've recognized when a song is done, I recognize that it's done, and I've sort of left it alone and said, yeah, I could change things in the mix, I could change this, I could change that, but the song itself is finished. And so I've, right. I've sort of learned how to move on from that. Um, shifting gears a little bit, in your bio that I was provi- can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you now. Seemed to uh, right. lag a little bit. Seemed to lag a little bit for some reason. All right, but you're okay now. You can hear me? Yep, seem to be able to hear you all right. All right, cool. Um, so uh, shifting gears a little bit, I noticed in your bio that you have a, uh, a bachelor's degree in jazz performance. Is jazz a kind of music genre that you'd also like to go into and write music for? Probably not. Um, when I was in school for jazz, the whole point of, of doing it was actually just sort of improve my experience, improve my playing ability, improve my theory, improve all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, while I have a great interest in it, and I still listen to a lot of jazz now, I can honestly say 
that I am much happier standing up and playing a G chord really loudly through a very loud amp than I am <laughs> sitting there and trying to create like really weird outside, like how far can I take some of these tones? Like I know how to do a lot of that stuff, but I've, it's never really been a love. You know, I love music. I love listening to other people do things like that. And I always find it fascinating and I still try to learn how to do it now, but it doesn't really sit as a love with me yet. And I know people that have told me that it, it didn't until they turned like 45 or 50. So, you know, I've got a bit of time yet until maybe that, that love sort of kicks in and I go, oh, this is something I want to pursue. This is something that maybe I'll start writing something in. But uh, right now, you know, I'm not, not really looking to go that direction. I'd probably go country easier than I would go towards jazz at this point. Well, you had mentioned earlier that that some of your songs have a little bit of that influence. Um, did you grow up? You didn't mention really any country in your early years. Is that something that you got into kind of more recently? Country music. When I was uh, trying to think, um, grade four and grade five, while everybody else was listening to Snoop Dogg, I was listening to Meatloaf uh, and Garth Brooks <laughs> and Dwight Yoakam and those kind of like original sort of new country-ish sort of guys that are out there. Because uh, again, my dad was an influence in my music, so he was listening to that at the time, and uh, so you know that became a part of what I was listening to, and I never saw anything wrong with that, even though it wasn't mm-hmm. popular with anybody I knew, um, and so when I got to a certain point, I sort of left that alone. And it's only been, I guess, in the last three or four years that I've really started to come back to it and, and hear a lot more of the newer country that's out now that is heavily popped influence. Um, you know, listening to guitar players like Toby Keith is an example, who is a fantastic guitar player and trying mm-hmm. to add some of his ability to, to mine more f- as a guitar player, more than from a songwriting perspective. You know, gotcha. Keith Urban, I think, has really nice melodies. He, he has a really nice idea of how to mix a song, um, great instrumentations and things. So I've, I've tried to, to take from some of his influences. Um, but a lot of the other guys, you know, I've, I've really just tried to improve myself as a guitar player first. You know, that's been more sort of my own personal drive more than as a songwriter. Um, I was reading that you've toured with a lot of really great acts. And um, is touring a thing that I know that, for some artists, touring can be grueling. Some people really love getting out on the road. Are you a big fan of getting out on the road and getting in front of people to play? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I love to play as much as I can. I, if I could play a show every night, I would. The The only thing is I've also I've also learned that the travel and the setup and everything else in between everything now starts to take a toll on you. So while I would love to go out and tour every night, I realize that physically that might not be possible um so you know but when i've been playing with the band uh because i've I've played with a band called c-spot run for 10 years up until this point and uh Mm -hmm. you know it's we did some extensive touring we we did uh, tours across canada like all the way up to the west coast back here and then back out to the east coast and back and um you know i've probably played closer to 2200 or 2300 shows with them in that time and uh you know I, I never got tired of it. It was never, it was never something that I said, uh, you know, I don't want to be doing this or that this isn't fun anymore or that I don't enjoy it. I, I enjoy playing music every night. And uh, would you say there's a, f- a favorite place you like to visit when you're on tour? Um, no. <laughs> I, I, and the only reason I say that is because, you know, there are some places that you go I mean, there's certain consistencies in how certain cities are and the people and so on that you start to notice after a while. But 
um, for the most part, you know, the small towns end up being a lot more fun than the, than the bigger cities at certain times, because the people are just, they're so close with each other and they want to be in so inclusive with you. Um, and especially, you know, here in Canada, uh, it's much more difficult to tour in Canada than it is in the U S because if, if I were to tour the state of New York, uh, in a shorter period of time, I would hit far more people in a greater population than I could touring the entirety of Canada, because oh, wow. not not only our population is that much lower, but they're so spread out. So you know, in New York, you could travel an hour and a half or two hours and play another show, and there'd still be another six or seven hundred people there. In Canada, you can travel sometimes eight to nine hours in between shows, and that's you know it becomes difficult to justify touring. But at the same time, you know, the people that you show up and play to in some of these small towns, because you traveled in eight or nine hours, they're so appreciative of you doing it because it, they get so few and far between acts that come into town that they really enjoy and that are good, that uh, they, they want to include you in their life. They want to, you know, they start saying stuff like, can you come over to our place for a barbecue? And can we show you this? And can you show you around town? And <laughs> Yeah, Sure. By all means, show me what you got. I'll take your food. Food? I like food. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? Uh, well, it's yeah. impossible to say no to free food. Exactly. <laughs> um, so being American myself, um, I've always been curious of what the music scene is like in Canada, across Canada. Is it a huge variety, or do you think it's kind of more or less a few different kinds of genres that are mostly popular? In the major cities, when you're talking about like um, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, uh, there's there's a huge variety just because they're more multicultural and larger, more diverse cities. Uh, so in Toronto, you can pretty much find every style that you've ever been looking for. Um, whereas when you go to Ottawa, you tend to find hard rock, indie, and country bands only. You don't really find a lot of blues and jazz acts. Um, you know, there's different pockets of people and especially out on the east coast you know they're really big in a country um they're really big into uh you know pop and canadiana sort of music by canadiana i mean bands like the tragically hip bare naked ladies uh sure you know alan alan doyle of uh, great big c you know those kind of things that they, mm -hmm. they have a big influence on things because they're sort of more celtic inspired music and mm -hmm. uh you know that that tends to sit with them a little bit more uh, and you get a lot of people that just do nothing but practice out in those areas too, which is kind of a cool thing is that there's a lot of really great musicians, um, everywhere across the country, but especially on the East coast, you know, that they have fewer things to do than they do in the multicultural cities. So they tend to practice more. They tend to, you know, go out and play in groups and, and have these sit-ins with each other that are just a blast. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've been, I've, only been to the Ni the uh, Niagara Falls area of Canada once, so I'm not super familiar with the layout. When you when you tour across Canada, do you uh, just hit one coast at a time, or do you kind of go across the whole all of Canada? Like, how does your touring path usually work when you're touring around Canada? So when we did it previously, um, like I'll put it this way: uh, north of Toronto, if you follow sort of going east along the side of Lake Ontario up towards Ottawa and Montreal and all those kind of areas. There's a lot more around there. As you start to go more true north of Toronto and sort of a little bit northwest, um, what happens is that there's very small, very few venues uh, between 
sort of about two to three hours north of Toronto, all the way until you reach up to Thunder Bay, which is about 20-hour drive from where I am. And okay. uh, so it's it's quite the the distance to get up there, you know. So you're you're not really going up there for a one-off show. You're sort of planning out, okay, we're we're going to do a bunch of little shows and stuff here, and then we're going to find some bigger shows here that maybe have uh, a little bit more of a payout, in order that we can fund continuing to go further and pay for gas and hotels and so on to be able to keep going. And once once you're sort of up there, that's the concept is we're going to keep going as far as we can because. Uh, we're, we're here. We went all this way to get up to this point. We might as well just keep going and come back. And, it, you know, the last time we did that, it, we left, uh, I guess, the end of June and came back the end of August. And oh, wow. we we would spend two or three days sometimes in some cities, and then other times we'd spend one night in one city and keep driving and, until we get somewhere else. And it's um, it's a little bit grueling, but it's a lot of fun, you know, especially if you like the guys that you play with. It makes it a lot easier. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and do you have any big tour plans once the new record comes out? For me, uh, I'm not doing any major tours. I'm going to be doing as much of uh, playing in Ontario and Quebec as I can because it's a lot more manageable for the time being. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the hope is to continue to look for a label and so on to be able to support some things going forward. Um, so far, I've been able to fund this record almost entirely uh, on my own uh, with with uh, just a little bit of help from a couple of people here and there. But uh, you know, I'm shopping around and trying to actively get radio play and uh, uh, get a little bit more publicity happening and, and see if I can shop it around and see if a record label will be in more support of trying to do a smaller tour of some type in order to be able to promote it. But in the meantime, I'm already booking shows right now. I'm going to start releasing a, a tour schedule uh, probably three or four weeks from now, just before the record comes out so that people can see where it is that they can catch me and where they can buy the record. And uh, we'll see what happens there afterwards. Cool. Well, I hope to even be the smallest help in your gaining your popularity here in the States. So. Uh, any help is appreciated. I mean, this interview to me is, is gold. You know, I, I love when people <laughs> are as enth- enthusiastic about music as we are and as I am. And, uh, you know, it's so great that, that you're willing to do this with artists. I mean, uh, I, if I'd be very surprised if any artist wasn't willing to sit down and talk to you about music or about their career at any given point in time. We're, we're so enthused by this whole scene that you know, it's hard to imagine somebody would tell you no. Sure. No, I mean, well, I've gotten no's, and I'm not going to name names, but it's usually <laughs> due to busy busyness, not necessarily not lack of interest. But uh, but I love talking to musicians. I, I mean, any performer, really, musicians, comedians, you know, magicians, anything, because anything in the arts really fascinates me because I'm always curious what goes into that kind of work. Um, like uh, what I like to ask a lot of artists, and I'll ask you, is what you do outside of writing music. Obviously, I'm sure writing music and working on music and playing and practicing takes up a lot of your time. But do you have any hobbies? that you like to enjoy that aren't music related i watch a lot of star wars cartoons um <laughs> I, there's nothing wrong with that no nothing at all you know honestly uh to be perfectly blunt i mean a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned writing and, and practicing and trying to put stuff together i mean that that takes up a lot of time you know the, a lot of the stuff that uh, a lot of people don't see of a uh a do-it-yourself kind of career is that you're you're making a lot of those connections. You're sending out a lot of emails and phone calls and, and so on, trying to make other stuff happen. But what I do in my spare time, quite honestly, is I, I play pool. I play billiards uh, every now and again. Uh, I watch cartoons because they're sort of my vice. You know, it was uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm done working and I can't see straight. I'm going to sit down and watch a cartoon or something. And uh, otherwise, it just seeing some movies, uh, hanging out with some friends at the pub, usually on a Tuesday and Wednesday when absolutely zero is of anybody is in there and I can just 
be quiet and enjoy a scotch here and there. You know, it's it's a a nice turnaround for me to be able to just sit down and relax and have a good conversation with people. Well, I'm there with you with the cartoon watching. I mean, I grew up watching cartoons, and there's still there's so many great shows that are so well written now. Like, I don't know if you had a chance to catch the uh, the remake that uh, Netflix has done of Voltron. But uh, but I, I I I highly recommend it. If you watched any of the old Voltron, it's it's a great love letter to the original, and it does its own stuff too. It's really truly. I will let you in on a little awesome. secret. I am sure that at my parents' house right now, in a tub of toys from when I was a kid, the original Voltron <laughs> toy is still sitting together in its entirety, uh, along with some Thundercats, along with some He-Man, along with uh, uh, original Transformers Optimus Prime. Like, I probably have a bunch of that stuff, along with my Legos, all sitting in a bin, uh, ready for the day when maybe I have some kids that I can pass them on to as well. And uh, I haven't seen the new Voltron yet, though, and I will definitely make an effort to go and watch it, because when I saw a commercial for that, I went, ooh, ah, other than Doctor <laughs> Who, I have very few vices, so that's definitely something I want to watch. Ah, so you're a Doctor Who fan. I am a Doctor Who fan. I've been a Doctor oh. Who fan since I was maybe five. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I got into Doctor Who late with the with the reboot of the series. Um, but um, you'll be interested to know that in Brooklyn, where I'm from, uh, there is a Doctor Who-themed bar called The Way Station, where um, I am friends with the owner. I met my wife there. I proposed to my wife there, and we even had a second ceremony there. So if you ever make it to Brooklyn, New York, I would love to show you the that bar. It's called The Way Station. I would absolutely adore that. In fact, they so have I a. My, sorry, I was going to say I will do my best to come down <laughs> to Manhattan and actually, uh, you know, I'll let you know when I drop by for sure. Nice, yeah, and uh, the biggest thing about the bar is that they have a life-size TARDIS in the bar. It's the bathroom. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so I have to ask you, since you're a Doctor Who fan like I am, who is your favorite Doctor? Um. You know, I've I've been asked this question a few times, and I'm always torn a little, but uh-huh. I have to say David Tennant, I think, is still my favorite, because, I mean, I still love Matt, Matt Smith and all the things that he does. Peter Capaldi, I think, is doing a fantastic job, because he's doing a little bit more of an homage and a character to a lot of the original guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, Baker, I think Baker was still my first original uh, uh, Doctor that I loved, so I, I like to see that he gets some of that more serious and humor in there, but... I think David Tennant just had something that he, I don't know, I I just immediately connected with him for some reason. There was a playfulness about him, and then he knew when to just get turned on and get serious, too. Yeah, um, I find that a lot of people prefer David Tennant. My favorite doctor has always been Nine, which is Christopher Eccleston. He was short-lived, but I liked his intensity. And when he was fun and exciting, it was a nice change. But uh, but I agree that I think Capaldi's doing a fantastic job now, and I like that he's got so many dimensions to his uh, to his version of the Doctor. Well, I think he's an evolving character too, which I never really found with the other Doctors. Is that they sort of pick their their thing. And they did their thing. I mean, Eccleston was no different, right? He always yeah. had that big, big, playful smile and was always like, uh, you know, diving headfirst into the stuff because he was just curious to see how something went. Mm-hmm. Whereas I find Peter Capaldi has a little bit of hesitation to him, but at the same time, he's cautious, but he is playful, but he's also serious and that he doesn't really know, like he's an evolving character, and I think that's been a very cool thing that he's done. 
But I wanted to ask, I know a lot of people feel that Stephen Moffat's writing has kind of fallen to the wayside in the later years. Do you think that the show is better written with Russell T. Davies than it has been with Stephen Moffat? Or do you think everything has its good and bad? I think everything has its good and bad. I mean, I know people sort of saw Moffat as being the guy to sort of tie everything together. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think people have been paying attention enough to this. It's kind of similar to the new Star Wars movie. You know, they've been paying yeah. paying attention enough to, to what people love about it and the things that they get into that they can replicate that in some sort of way. And they just need the practice in order to be able to carry it on really more significantly. And since you mentioned Star Wars a few times at this point, and I promise we'll get back <laughs> to music eventually. Hey, but, uh, um, what did you like the new Star Wars movie? Because I personally was a huge fan of it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Oh, I loved it. I, I was actually quite shocked because uh, my buddy... Uh, who was in town, he's my best friend, lives up in Montreal, and he, he said, you know, do you want to go see this movie tonight? And I went, oh, I don't, there's no way we're getting in, but okay, I'll take a look for tickets. Because it was the, the Thursday night before the movie came out. And as mm-hmm. it turned out, we found the one show where there was like 10 people in the whole theater. We sort of had a private oh, wow. showing all to ourselves almost by accident, even though the two or three showings before that had three, 400 people in line, uh, you know, before the movie even started, we walked almost right into ours without any issue whatsoever. It was hilarious. Um, but I loved it. I saw it twice, I think within the first couple of weeks, um, not by any sort of intent, just because I could, and because I liked it. And, um, I, I thought that, you know, while it carries a lot of things over from what the first one was, and obviously has some similar plot stuff, I'm not, so concerned about that i think people are too critical of it i think you just sort of have Mm -hmm. to take it as it is no i agree i know that there was a lot of fallout because you know there was this extended universe that existed in the comic books and the and the regular novels and that they ignored that but but i thought it was a solidly written movie and even the steps along the way that i saw coming and spoil alert if you haven't seen star wars yet too bad but like the scene when han solo is killed like i i could see that coming it was just it was kind of predictable in the writing but it still broke my heart when it happened oh absolutely and, and, and you know i was the same way as soon as they walked into that area and, and um what's his name ren showed up i went oh i know exactly what's going to happen now yeah sure. but but you know to your point of the extended universe and everything uh, as writers they can't assume that everybody's going to know that stuff you know, that's yeah. the other side of it. Same with Doctor Who. You know, they sort of have to continue to write it from a standpoint of, let's say you're just getting into the series now. How do we still get people to be drawn in? And, you know, we reiterate that he's an immortal guy that's lived for this long and, you know, he never really dies and he changes faces, etc. Like you have to keep putting that stuff in there, not because the fans don't know, but because every once in a while you're going to get people who are just seeing this for the first time. And you need to keep get those people as interested as the old fans. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so um, going back to music. Well, I was going to say, that actually has a really great correlation to music too, by the way, I might add. Yeah. Well, for sure. And uh, I feel like that, you know, any band that's releasing new records and putting out new music, you've kind of got to, you don't want things so accessible and simple that they're not even interesting, but you want some level of accessibility because you want to be able to draw people into what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's other bands out there that have sort of been nicknamed uh, heritage bands. And those yeah. those heritage bands have a certain thing that people like, like Styx has been touring, uh, you know, all over North America for a while now. And uh, they're just doing what they've always done. And I, I've known people that have criticized them for it. But realistically, 
the fans and, and the other musicians that loved what Sticks does, they're not criticizing it because it's exactly what they want to see. They want to see them walk in, play all their old hits, have that same look, the hair, the, you know, the musicianship that goes along <laughs> with that. And they're happy with that, you know, to, to go and criticize them for not doing something new. Well, you're sort of missing the point. Their sales are here. They're making money here. Their fans are here. They're not going to ostracize that. doesn't make sense. <laughs> No, for sure. Uh, the other podcast I do with two co-hosts is a weekly album review show. And often what we'll say is when we're reviewing an album that sounds like an artist's previous work is we'll say, well, they're not necessarily doing anything new to music. But if this is what they're doing and it sells, I mean, you can't fault marketing and sales. You know, if it works, it works. You don't always agree with it, maybe, or think it's, you know, uh, uh, of a certain quality, but if it's selling and you know what your fans want and you keep delivering it, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's what you're going to do. And there's a certain technique to doing that too. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, some people can do that. Some people can continue to evolve and do new things. Um, you know, cage the elephant, for example, I would say would be in a, a band that has sort of evolved their sound a little bit in the way they go about doing things. Mumford and Sons is another perfect example of that, where they come out with an electric album after doing acoustic stuff and making their name on acoustic stuff. I mean, that's, that's hard to rebrand yourself and to redo your music in a completely different way like that and expect that the fans are going to be hanging on and, and still paying attention. I mean, that's, that's tough. And uh, I think anybody who's critical of that, you know, sort of missing, missing the point, you know, a band, sure. a band doing what they do um, is unique to a certain degree. And most bands can't get away with that and can't do it well. You know, coming up with something different and original and innovative every time is hard. And at a certain point, you might not be good at it. So do what you're good at. Why, why force it? Make music the way you want to make music. If this works for you, then keep doing it. Totally. Yeah. Um, I want to take it back to your songwriting a little bit. Um, you know, you're talking about how you've been writing songs for a long time. Have you ever found when you're trying to pull a song together or you're trying to write it that you've had to like abandon it or put it on the shelf because you just couldn't get it complete enough or you weren't satisfied with the result enough and you've kind of shelved it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, the bridge is always the hardest part of the song to write for me because I find that, uh, you know, intros, Okay, whatever, I can create an intro that, that never really seems to be too difficult. Verses and choruses, okay, yes, we just need to write some new lyrics here, maybe some new instru instrumentation in the verse. The chorus is pretty much the same. What the heck do you do with a bridge? You know, how do you, how do you change keys well? How do you, um, you know, find a new set of chords in order to be create something that's a little bit different? Do I sing in this? Do I just put a guitar solo in? Have I done too many guitar solos? You know, maybe I should put a piano solo in here. Like, I, that's the one part of the tune that I always find the hardest to do. And I've had probably three or four songs where, you know, I've, I did a month's worth of work and production on a song and then just got to a point where I said, I, I've got no idea where to go with this now. So I, I put it aside and shelved it and went and finished maybe two other songs before coming back to it and went, Oh, now I know what to do. Or, and so you, you find that happens. Like if you give yourself some space and come back to it, you can kind of figure out what you were missing. Yeah. And I find that it makes the song better too. Because uh, you're now sort of looking at it with fresh ears. You're not looking at it from the same perspective. You know, I've known a lot of songwriters before that have written songs 10 years ago that they're trying to use now or they're trying to make work now and that they, they have a really difficult time separating themselves from what they've previously done with it. Um, and that's a lot of the reason that maybe it doesn't go the direction that they want it to because it, 
um, they, they have this sentimentality to it or I've put so much work into this until this point when really you just need to scrap the whole thing and start from scratch and go, okay, um, you know, let's keep the same lyrics, but maybe let's change the melody a little bit and maybe do it in a different key and see what happens. And, you know, sometimes that's the best thing you can do for a song. It's hard, you know, as artists, it's incredibly difficult for us to think about all the work that we put into something. It'd be like telling a painter, this sucks, start again. You know, they, right. They would look at it and be like, are you kidding me? This is what it, this is what I'm trying to do. You know, like, look what I've put on this piece of paper. It's like, eh, take the same image, take the same sort of concept, scrap that and try again and see what happens. It, it's very difficult for them to separate themselves from that. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I want to say it's almost like it bruises your ego to think that you can't finish something or that it's not good enough. Sure. No, I totally hear that. I mean, you know, I think that it's the writing process has always interested me because I'm not a songwriter. And so I've always curious, like where inspiration for music come from. So, you know, we're talking, you talked about what inspired the, uh, your, um, what was the single that we were talking about earlier? Um, I'm blanking on the name of it now that we just no, talked about. Um, and nobody <laughs> talked to right. And nobody that it was I, my, yeah. I was uh, running my brain for that. So yeah, and that it was like kind of influenced by this kind of connected generation and nobody like talking to each other. Have you found inspiration in very strange places uh, sometimes when when writing a song? Yeah, um, I mean, I've I found inspiration pretty much everywhere that I've ever gone. Um, and I mean, some songs are entirely based on a mood as opposed to something tangible or um, the song I mentioned earlier, All Mine, for example, is sort of referring to this all-encompassing person that is coming into my life that I'm supposedly falling head over heels for, when really I have no idea who that person was. In fact, when I wrote that tune, I had nobody in mind whatsoever. In my mind, it was just kind of like, if this angel walked into your life, this might be approximately what it was, but she didn't even have a face. and It wasn't like it was a body or hair or anything. It was just you knew that this would be the perfect person. And sometimes that's, you know, what you got to roll with. You, you know, you, you can you can pick something that is right in front of you. This white paper, here we go, this is that white paper, this beer I'm drinking, this, uh, you know, girl that broke up with me and broke my heart recently, whatever. You know, there's those sort of tangible things. And then there's mm -hmm. sort of those intangible things that you can pull from as well, which is just, I'm sitting down, with uh, a glass of wine in a nice uh, cafe somewhere and there's a fireplace and I'm in a comfy leather chair. Um, and the song I'm about to write has nothing to do with any of those things, but the mood that I'm in this sort of relaxed sort of introverted mood um, sort of inspires a line that you go, okay, here we go. This is how we're going to write a song. Um, and I would actually suggest to you that you try to write a song. Really? Well, why not? Where's the heart? I mean, I, well, I think that's that's a fair point. Um, no, yeah, I've I, I've uh, I I used to play very little guitar in high school, and it's just not a thing I've really dabbled with. I've always been kind of the mixing, you know, audio nerd kind of person, and you know, writing has not been a thing that I thought I could do. But then again, if you had told me, you know, two years ago or four years ago that I'd have two successful podcasts, I wouldn't believe you either. So I guess you know, there's that. Well, what I would say is. Uh, I mean, a lot of people get caught up in the details of how to write a song a lot of the time. And it's the same stuff that professional songwriters get caught up in. They, they start thinking, how do I do this now? 
and to a certain degree, it's just, well, you got to do it. That's how. Right. It's not like you, you just suddenly choose that, okay, this is how I'm going to write the song, and it's going to turn out like this. You're right. sort of pulling from nothingness. So in your case, I would say sit down and try to think about what you would like to write, anything, whether it's a feeling, whether it's an experience, a person, you know, a frustration. Just try to write a, a small story and then see if you can make rhythm out of that small story that you're writing line to line and that that, for the most part, will inspire it. Uh, you know, Mr. Brightside is an example. I would sure. argue that that song and those lyrics aren't aren't really a crafted song as much as they are just a story, and that the song sort of came out of that. Yeah, that actually that I love that song for that because it kind of feels like it's just this kind of storytell. It has that narrative feel that you kind of just get wrapped up in the story of it. Exactly, which is one of the things that people love about it because it is telling a story and it's a very relatable story to a lot of people. And, you know, it's easy to understand, you know, it's not necessarily even about the melody. It's about being able to scream this feeling at the top of your lungs. And, uh, you know, again, that's an anomaly of a song. You know, you wouldn't take that as a here's my formula of how I'm going to write a tune. But it's a very effective, um, you know, overall composition. You know, it's something that a lot of people get into and that, uh, you know, I've played before and i've seen people in clubs you know every word to that song uh my follow-up question is going to be kind of something a uh, a thinking exercise i guess we can call it um if you could sing a duet with any musician whatsoever alive or dead who would that one musician or vocalist be oh geez yeah wow you're you're really uh you're really hitting home on that one yeah bring um, out the big big guns for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, uh, to be honest, I, you know, I don't know if I could even name one necessarily. Uh, sure. I think it would be a hell of a good time to to actually go up and play and sing with Matt Bellamy from Muse. Sure. I, you know, I just yeah. think he has such a a unique vocal range and, and a way of of singing. But at the same time, as a guitar player, I think he's phenomenal. Um, yeah. And at the same time. I'm not even sure that it's necessarily a a sing with or perform with uh, in that way sort of situation that I'm really craving. For, uh, my idol has always been Slash. I love mm-hmm. his style of playing, and I would love to play blues with that guy. I don't yeah, know what sure. it is, but there's just something <laughs> about, you know, like not even I want to go and play Sweet Child of Mine. Okay, fine. We've heard we played that a million times. I still love it. Don't get me wrong. But I want to, okay, dude, let's sit down and play some Albert King. You know, like I want to, I want to feel what you're trying to show me and what you're trying to play to me, and you know what you say through that instrument. And to me, that's as important as what somebody would sing to me. Um, so I think that would really be the the ideal experience for me is to be able to play with Slash. Well, it's funny you mentioned Slash. I always thought Slash is just such an interesting person, not even musician, which he's, of course, a phenomenal musician. But like I found out, apparently he's a huge dinosaur nerd. I don't know if that's a thing you've actually heard, but apparently like he's actually very nerdy about dinosaurs, which I think is fascinating. I, I think that's fascinating, too. I actually grew up with an innate fascination with dinosaurs myself. 
So that actually would give me a lot of talking points with him now. That's good to know. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. Uh, growing up in New York and the Museum of Natural History has a fantastic dinosaur exhibit. Um, I've always been fascinated by that kind of stuff, especially considering even when I was a kid, like how little we really knew about dinosaurs just made it even more interesting. Mm-hmm. And and now it's just, uh, of course, everything's sort of evolving and changing in that uh uh, in that science, you know, they're learning so much in the last 10 years about what they actually were versus what they, they thought they were. And uh, it's it's very fascinating to me to see how that that science is evolving and what we're learning from it. You know, uh, I mean, science in general to me has always been, you know, I'm still a nerd at heart. Let's just put it that way. Sure. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being nerdy. No. Everyone's nerdy about something. Absolutely. And if you're not, then you're missing out on something. Right, exactly. I've always considered being a nerd as just being extremely overly passionate about a thing, you know. Like, I like to pick on my friends who play fantasy football because I just call it D&D for jocks because essentially it's the same thing as playing D&D. <laughs> you're picking stats, you're making a fantasy team, you're trying to win a thing. It's, you know, it's not that different. Yeah, if you got them over the stigma of playing Magic, I'm sure they'd be totally into that too. <laughs> yeah, you that's know? true. Pokemon Go is an acceptable version of that now. I would agree. I've actually been quite obsessed with it. I grew up playing the Pokemon games, so to have something that's accessible on my phone that's actually fun and interactive and community-based is, is fascinating. Like in my neighborhood two weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have stopped in front of any local neighborhood, anything, and chatted with strangers. But now like everyone's looking at their phone and they look up and go, oh, what team are you on? What Pokemon did you catch? And <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. It's, it's an interesting device to to get people to kind of talk, you know, instead of just looking at your phone, silently reading articles or listening to music kind of a thing, you know? And I, I think there was a stigma about all that before, but I find that in the last 10 years that people are a lot more open to it now because I think they're starting to realize how susceptible they are to it as well. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you brought up D&D, Dungeons & Dragons, for anybody out there who doesn't know for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> you know, that was something that used to be sort of the stereotype of, of the basement lives with his mom nerd that was portrayed <laughs> in all the movies for, you know, since the 80s. And realistically, that's something that a lot of people could have become a lot more addicted to or a lot more into if they were just not looking at the stigma as being, oh, I don't want to be associated with that kind of person. You know, and now it's it's sort of been this big open melting pot of, okay, well, yeah, everybody's into something like that now. What's the big deal? You know, you and I are talking yeah. about Doctor Who. I've got friends I talk about Star Trek and Star Wars with. I have other ones that I talk about science, you know, like what's happening mm-hmm. in uh, space exploration and things like that right now. And, uh, you know, everybody's got their vices and those kind of things. And I think people as a whole are becoming um, – a lot less wary of, oh, I don't want to come off as seeing like a nerd or a geek. Like it's not nearly the the bad thing that it was when, you know, all the 80s Ferris Bueller movies were coming out. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. And I mean, now that everybody has space age, you know, cell phones that, you know, essentially a tiny computer, it's like everyone knows about the Internet and computers and their niches. And so it, it's made kind of being geeky about something more accessible, too. Yeah. And I think that's where people are part of the reason why people are a lot more accepting of it because they got into it themselves. So it's very difficult for them to be hypocritical now and, uh, you know, say, oh, geez, what a science nerd or what a geek you are or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of read up on that, too. Oh, crap. OK, I sort of have to accept <laughs> I fall into this whole thing. And, you know, Pokemon's a perfect example of that. You know, you don't want to grow up and you, you want to be a, a six year old again, by all means. 
you know, do this. Why, why should anybody tell you that you can't? You know? Sure, of course. So long as uh, you're not going off cliffs, you're fine. Yeah, which is like I think it's hilarious that that happened. But I'm uh, my defense is I feel like uh, if someone's going to walk off a cliff playing that game, there was a bigger problem than him playing the game. I feel like I would agree. You know, you <laughs> you need to pull your face out of your phone a little bit more. And I, I mean, the best part is that there's two guys there. So how did two people looking at one phone or two people looking at each of their phones do exactly the same thing? I don't get it. But anyway. Moving on. Yes, sure. Although it's it's a great tie-in back to to nobody to talk to because I've noticed living in New York as long as I have, like, and taking the subway as long as I have, like, you know, when I was younger, it was I would read a book or I would have my Walkman. You know, for those who don't know, Walkman used to play these things called cassettes that uh, I I like to pretend I'm really old, even though I'm not that old. <laughs> but I feel like nobody knows what a Walkman is anymore. Um, but you know, this idea that people were would sometimes introverted, but like now you look around a subway car and it's like nobody's looking up everyone's looking either at their phone or their newspaper or their tablet and you know there is this kind of alone in a crowded room feel sometimes in public places i find um and not trying to be contradictory to that by any means just uh <laughs> you know i also i also find that part of the reason that that exists is the lack of people that enjoy their jobs you know and and sure you know, you get people that go to work from nine to five and then they get on the train at nine to five to come home or the subway or whatever. And they just simply are done dealing with anybody for the day. You know, I, yeah. I was coming back from Montreal a while ago and, and I was surprised because I don't, I don't work nine to five and I was on a train that happened to be a uh, public transit coming from Toronto back to Hamilton where I live. And I was surprised to find that it was a quiet noise free zone. Like they had it advertised as such. And I kept thinking, well, why would that be? It's because they don't want to talk to anybody. They don't want anybody right. talking over them. They don't, don't want the noise. They're tired. They're done. They've already been berated all day. <clears throat> they, they're done for this evening, you know, and they just want to put their face in their phone or enter their Walkman or iPod or iPod or newspaper or whatever they want. And that's their world for right now, because you talking over me makes my head hurt and I'm done with you. And I, I find that you don't get that when you enjoy your job as much. You know, sure. you going to work is probably not the same as somebody going to do paperwork all day or count numbers, you know, and same, yeah. same with my job. I, I do nothing but talk to people when I'm on the gig a lot of the time. But, you know, I'm not as worn out. You know, I'm not as opposed to talking to people afterwards. I'm actually quite happy to do so. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of that too. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot rarer. I feel like now too, to find that job that you're passionate about. Um, you know, it, it, there's just so much more stuff and noise out there that, you know, the searching, I feel like sometimes is a lot harder to find that thing that you're really passionate about. Yeah. And it's easy to fall into uh, whatever, as you said, the easier thing to find is, you know, it's easy to find a computer yeah. job or a tech job. It's easy to find, an accounting job, it's easy. I mean, easy being relative, obviously. It's not, sure. not actually that easy. But I'm just saying, you know, coming out of high school, it's easier to think that you can go and be an accountant than it is to think that you can light off fireworks for a living or yeah. design props or um, an old student of mine who went and uh, did an internship studying orca whales and things like that. You know, like it's it's those kind of jobs that you really have to be thinking a little bit more out of the box for. Otherwise, you you do fall into that job that you may or may not like. It might pay well, but 
you're you're kind of hating going to it every day. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I said before, if you told me four or five years ago that I'd be recording a podcast, you know, or several podcasts, I'd go, well, first, I'd probably ask you what a podcast is. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where I think we're also in a generation where you can kind of make your own work, too. Like, the, it's a, it, there's a lot more access to the tools to make your own thing, you know, <laughs> you, you don't have to kind of go to someone else for it. You know, you can, and there is help and there's other ways, but a lot of basics you can start with just on your own because everyone has a computer, everyone has a phone, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I'm tying that back into making an album. That's exactly what it is that musicians are dealing with right now is there's a lot of great musicians out there just making albums at home because they can't afford the studio time anymore. Um, Sure. But on the flip side of that, it, it dilutes the music industry quite a bit, too, because, um, you know, you get enough of a half decent product and that's what people start to take as a standard. So, sure. you know, it, it then goes and promotes more people making a half decent problem product instead of a great product. You know, and that affordability versus accessibility versus knowledge versus training versus everything else and now sort of starts to play with each other you know you you get people who are naturally talented and make really great music or untrained musicians then you get really great trained musicians who still can't make a good song um but on the flip side of that you get really great musicians who can make a great song and people don't recognize it as being necessarily a good song because of its comparison, you know, because they're comparing it to, well, my buddy over here made an album at home and he doesn't have any training and he's not bad. So their album sounds good, but their album sounds good as well. It's like, uh, okay, you know, so who's sure. going willing to pay money for? Whose album are you going to buy? Oh, I'm not going to buy either of those. I'm going to download both of them or they're going to give it to me for free or whatever. It's like, uh, okay, so how do I make an how do I make a living at this again? Yeah, sure. No, you know and I... I would always say that because of the access, like music has never been better, but it's also at the same time never been worse because of that access. Yeah, and that's very true. And I think that access has um, made people very aware of a lot of things they wouldn't have before. Um, sure. You know, when, I, when I talk about jazz stuff or blues or other types of music that I uh, wouldn't necessarily think people know a lot about, they do because they're going out of their way to, to find it, you know. Um, sure. I think Spotify, is, as an example, and those kind of streaming services are great because people are listening to entire albums again because they're not just buying the one single. They're paying for a subscription where they can listen to as much of something as they want, and so they do, and they go out and search for these things more than they used to. Um, and I, I think that that's a great example of, of where people can find really great music if they're looking for it. Um, Unfortunately, it's it's getting people to look for it. That's the tough part. Sure, of course. Yeah, I, I think Spotify, you know, can be considered a double-edged sword. But I think that, yeah, you know, it, being able to stream that kind of stuff is really great. And for me personally, I pay for it. And, you know, if there's an album on Spotify that I really like, I'll go buy it on iTunes after I've listened to it a couple of times because I still want to support the artist who's making the music, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and that's that's great. You know, and I think we're starting to come back to that mentality as well because we've made it so easy for people to do that. You know, and I think yeah. that was the major drawback for a while was that the industry wasn't sure how to make it that easy for people to buy music when it right. was so easy for them to steal it. You know, to then go and take it off of Napster back in the day, and you sure. know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go to LimeWare and I'm gonna 
going to download the next 40 albums that I really enjoy. You know, we've, we made it so easy for people to do that and not as easy for them to buy it. And now that I think we've gotten to a point where, you know, it's easy for them to buy it again, I think people are, are making that decision to buy it rather than just to take it. Um, yeah. I think it's it's improving slowly, but improving. Yeah. Sure, totally. Um, before we wrap up, I would just love for you to, if you could give advice to future songwriters, musicians, people who are trying to get that stuff done or, you know, get into that, that uh, art, uh, what would you say is the biggest thing that helped you that you would pass on to those who want to become songwriters? Uh I would say a couple of things. The very first thing would be don't shy away from what you naturally do. Don't feel like it's not good enough. Um, you know, the, the main thing I've always found that people shy away from is the idea of writing whatever comes naturally to them because I feel that maybe it's a little bit too obvious or a little bit too, um, you know, people pop. You know, I do pop music. I get that. I've accepted it. You know, I've, I've, I've owned it as much as I can. And I find that writing pop music is one of those things that people want to get away from because they feel like it doesn't have validity to it. And I, I don't feel that people should feel that any music they write shouldn't have validity to it. Um, that said, the other piece of advice I would say is always keep trying to learn. You know, if, if you're trying to be a successful songwriter and you can measure that uh, yardstick however you want, whether it's by sales or whether it's by the product you create, uh, then keep trying to better yourself at it. Keep trying to improve at being a songwriter. And don't ever feel like, you know, you've got a, a 2,000 fans that went and bought it that you're good enough. You know, keep improving on that. Never feel like you're you're too big for your britches. Improve on your songwriting year after year as much as you can. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for chatting with me today. Um, where can uh, our listeners find you out on the Internet? On the internet is the easiest place, obviously, to find anybody. Um, you can find me at AaronLittleMusic.com. That's A-A-R-O-N Little, L-A-T-T-L-E, Music.com. You can find me on uh, Facebook under the same thing, Aaron Little Music. So Facebook.com slash Aaron Little Music. Twitter, I have a page as well, uh, which you can find via my website, which is easy. Um, I'm soon to have an Instagram account. I'm soon to have, uh, I mean, I've got a Tumblr account, but there's not a ton on there yet. Uh, SoundCloud, I'm up on there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm up pretty much everywhere that you can find me. And uh, the album is called It's About Time Again. It's uh, 10 songs, and it's going to be available on iTunes, on Spotify, on Amazon, on CD Baby, on everything that you can find uh, August 26th, very shortly. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the luck in the world, and hopefully you make it out to the States sometime. I really look forward to doing so. I will definitely make an effort to do that. Uh, my publicist, as you know, is down in that area too, so I guess I should try and book a show for everybody uh, to actually come out and see me play. And uh, I will let, let you know when I come into town so that we can geek out together and go look at dinosaurs. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron. You have a great night, and thanks for chatting. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Take care. You as well. If you enjoyed these interviews, please subscribe to this and the Crash Chords podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to post in the comment area below each post. And keep the discussion going, because remember, music is life, and life is good.